We're going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 this morning, and we are continuing in a short series called Ordinary as we look at the Christian life and all that is ordinary about it. And this morning's title is Ordinary Providence, and we'll be in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and we will look at verses 10 through 20. Our key words for our worshipers in training are providence, kingdom, and power. Now, Dr. John Witherspoon was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was also the president of the College of New Jersey. Dr. Witherspoon lived a couple of miles away from the college in a place called Rocky Hill, and he drove a horse and buggy each day to his office at the college from his home. One day, he was in his office, and one of his neighbors came bursting in and said, Dr. Witherspoon, you must join me in giving thanks to God for his extraordinary providence in saving my life. As I was driving from Rocky Hill, the horse ran away. The buggy was smashed to pieces on the rocks, but I escaped unharmed. And Dr. Witherspoon, on hearing this, leans back in his chair quietly and he says, My friend, I can tell you a far more remarkable providence than that. I have driven my horse and buggy over that road hundreds upon hundreds of times. And my horse has never ran away. My buggy has never been smashed. And I have never been hurt. Dr. Witherspoon's point was very simple. And this is our focus this morning. That God is not only in the earthquakes and the wind and the fire. He doesn't just provide manna from heaven. He provides every grain that can be consumed. Most people talk about God as though he is sort of in the background of daily life until something catastrophic happens, something big. And then people want to know where God was when a plane crashes. They shake their fist at the heavens. But how many are giving thanks to God all day long while everyday planes are taking off and landing all around the world by the thousands? without incident. You see, most of God's gifts are not dazzling and gaudy, but they're wrapped in simple brown paper. Quiet provisions of safety on the highway as we drive, the health of our children, the direct deposit of our paychecks, simple dinner with our families, It's all in an ordinary day's work for our God. And when we talk about the ordinary providence of God, we're talking about God's actions in our world and with how, according to what he has revealed to us in Scripture, the activity of God is carried out day by day. So don't be intimidated by the word. Providence is a theological term, but it, it simply describes this reality that God provides God gives, God works. So keep that in mind this morning as we walk through this study on the ordinary providence of God, this idea that God provides. 
And it doesn't take a tremendous amount of Bible knowledge to see that this is true, right? Scripture teaches us that the love and care of God extends to the very minute details of our lives in a wide variety of ways. For example, in his teaching about care and anxiety, Jesus teaches us that the hairs on a believer's head are numbered. You ever tried to count your hairs? Some of you, it's easier than others. God knows every one. Every moment that a sparrow moves, the Lord is aware. And Jesus tells us that believers can be sure that since we are more valuable than a sparrow, that our own movements are also directed by God. God permitted Paul's thorn in his flesh to remain, even though he prayed that it be removed three times. Characters such as Moses and Joseph looked back on their lives and no doubt they could see how very seemingly trivial events, the many-colored coat, the cry of a, of a baby in the bulrushes, the forgetfulness of a released prisoner, all of these things contributed to the fulfillment of their God-given destinies. In fact, one of the greatest statements concerning the providence of God was from the mouth of Joseph as he spoke to his brothers who had plotted to kill him and instead sold him into slavery, leading him to many years of suffering and struggle. And when he was finally the governor over many people, he saved them from a great famine. And his brothers feared him. And yet Joseph said to all of them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And remember also, it's not just the ordinary lives of individual Christians being guided by God. And that the rest of creation all around us is just in utter chaos. Yes, every single Christian life is guided by God, but it's not as though every Christian life is on an island of purpose and it's set on a sea of confusion. What is true of the individual Christian is true of all others as well, past, present, and future. All of us, an innumerable amount of people, are in the exact same position under the providential working of God. For the Christian, God guides us even when we don't realize it. He cares for us. He provides for us. And though our lives sometimes have a darker side and pain and loss and heartache and suffering along the way. They're all woven together by God with times of pleasure and blessing, and they all further his purposes for us. When Paul teaches us in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good, he's referring to the unsurpassable power and wisdom that God has to bring the diverse strands of our lives together to be a part of our ultimate blessedness for his glory. And so when we talk about God's providence, we're saying that by some mysterious process, God is able to even work the weakness and the persecution and even the sins of our lives and the lives of others to bring about the greatest good for us as his children. And remember this too, not only are we as individual Christians and the Christian church the object of God's attention, 
all of nature, all of the forces and people who are indifferent to God and even defiant to him. God is the creator and sustainer of all that is. And included this in this are the hundreds of millions of galaxies that exist, the hosts of angels and archangels, and even Satan himself, as Job found out. Paul told the Athenians in Acts 17 that we live and move and have our being in God. All things consist in Christ, Paul tells us in Colossians 1. The detail of God's providence is shown even in the fact that God uses evil people and evil nations to bring about certain consequences and ends that are intended by him, but not by them. And we must remember, God has a right to govern what he himself has brought into existence. Like the potter, the Lord has power over the clay. He has the right to do whatever he pleases with what he has made. We can joyfully say with the Apostle Paul, from him and through him and to him are all things. Glory be to him forever. So the providence of God is bound up with the interests of individual Christians, with the interest of the Christian church, and with the interests of the whole creation, both animate and inanimate. And most of the time, we go about our lives day by day without giving a whole lot of thought to the reality that even if for one-tenth of one-tenth of one second, God stops working providentially in the world, that it all collapsed into utter nothingness. He's always at work, and he's always doing something providentially, and it is all working toward his ends that are intended for his glory and for the ultimate good of his church. Now, I want to take some time this morning to look at a prayer from King David in the Old Testament book of First Chronicles. We're going to look at chapter 9, and we will begin in verse 10. But I want to give you a bit of context so that we understand why David prays the way that he does. Now, First Chronicles was written very soon after Israel was sent into exile, ultimately a plan of God because of their disobedience. But the Babylonians brought them into exile out of the promised land. Now, the main emphasis of the book is on God's plan for the people and for the king of Jerusalem, despite their circumstances. The exile to Babylon had really crushed all of their trust in these covenantal promises of God. So, First Chronicles goes to show God's continued faithfulness to his people, even in the midst of what we would say is a dark or very difficult providence. One commentator summarizes the book this way. He says, how could the deported descendants of Abraham ever bless the nations as a special people? What happened to God's assurance that King Dave, to King David that his throne over Israel would be established forever? Though many Jews had already returned from exile, they remained slaves in their own land without a king to call their own. It was a dark, difficult time for them. And so First Chronicles is in many ways a review of all that God had done with his people, particularly focused on the past glories of Israel with David as their king. Ultimately, we know it's paving the way for another Davidic king, the king named Jesus who rules over all nations forever and ever. 
Now, specifically here in chapter 29, David is praying a prayer of thanksgiving and praise to God as his son Solomon is about to ascend to the Davidic throne. And so let's begin in 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 10. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we, uh, have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And so as David here considers all that God has done, as he thinks upon the abundance of the gifts that he's been given by God, the kindness and provision of God, the care that God has shown for his people countless times again and again and again, David breaks forth in praise and thanksgiving to the giver of every good and perfect gift. He acknowledges that the kingdom and the whole earth belongs to the Lord. And he seeks for the Lord to move the hearts of Israel. Blessed is the Lord, he says, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. David is linking the blessing of this present experience of Israel to the past. And this blessing secures for them their future. The eternal God is the Lord who was with Jacob and is now with David and will always be with his people So David draws assurance from the eternal God as the God of his father, which is the same assurance available to you and I. The Lord is the God of yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord's love is everlasting upon everlasting. 
and very important to what we're considering today. David's prayer assumes a dynamic, active God who loves his people and supplies their every need. And so from the very start, the thing I hope that we can see together is how David responds. There's a confidence in God, in his providence, and it evokes praise and thanksgiving with his people. Do we express praise and thankfulness for the seemingly normal everyday things of our lives that we must recognize as a part of God's providential working for us? David identifies that God is indeed sovereign over all. He says in verse 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power of the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And then again in verse 12, he says, You rule over all. And so this recognition of God being the sovereign ruler who, who leads to what David then says in verse 14, for all things come from you and of your own have we given you. In other words, it's all yours and anything that we give as an offering unto you is only giving back to you what you have already provided for us. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? God is sovereign over all things. Therefore, it's right to say that it belongs to him. And so we have it, but it is a gift to us from him. And when we give it, it is only a giving of what was his in the first place. We are simply stewards of all that belongs to God. And so David's prayer continues to draw us upward We can't see anything in this life as an end in itself. It ought to always bring us upward to God. Today, God's involvement in our everyday lives seems to be very rarely considered. We go to the grocery store and get our bread. We don't sit and wait for manna to fall from heaven. We have the weather channel. And so when a hurricane is headed for shore, do we really need to pray? Ebola and cancer and AIDS are all diseases, so we wait for medical uh, technology to advance and to fix those things with procedures and pharmaceuticals. And we want to believe, and I hope that you do, that all of these remedies are, in fact, gifts from God. They're good things. But we are so often much more prone to be thankful for the gift than we are the giver. There are basically two ways that many people consider God's working in the world today, and neither of them looks anything like David's prayer here in First Chronicles. One way of considering the world is through a naturalistic view. Everything is ordinary and natural. It is self-caused. It is self-sustaining. It's chance plus time. The other way is the opposite. It's a hyper-supernaturalism where the entire notion of God using ordinary means is almost laughable. Interestingly, both of these end up in the same place. They both bring everything to the same end, which is that there is only one cause in the world. And if God is that cause, it will be very obvious and very in your face. Or if it's natural, God's not involved in it at all. But both of these opposite extremes, while they come to the same ends, 
are both absolutely wrong according to Scripture. So think of David's words. You are rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So we absolutely recognize God's sovereign power and reign over all. However, we also recognize that while God has absolute rule over all, he is not the immediate cause of every act, and especially acts of sin. We know this is true. The Bible teaches right alongside one another God's absolute sovereignty in all things and man's responsibility. God is not the author of evil. And yet, all of our works, both good and evil, are part of God's eternal decree that whatsoever comes to pass is part of his work to bring about his ends. So God uses natural means to fulfill his sovereign purposes. These natural means are what uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin referred to as masks that God wears. So we pray for our daily bread. But manna doesn't miraculously fall from heaven as it did for the Israelites in the wilderness. So does that mean that God doesn't provide? No, God fulfills his purposes through natural means and processes and vocations. So someone had to plant and care for and harvest the grain. Others had to load trucks and transport the bread from the factory to the grocery store after it was baked in a bakery. And the man had to work through the night to stock the shelves so that when I show up at the grocery store, it is there that I can bring it home. All of these things, all of these processes, all of these vocations and people are required masks that God uses to get a sandwich on our table with fresh bread. So do we thank, do we thank God for our sandwich? Of course we do. Did God make it? Well, ultimately, he brought about the growth and everything that went into it because he is the Lord who rules over all. But to bring about his purposes, he used many hands, many of your hands. Here's my point. We should not make a sharp distinction between natural and supernatural actions in the work of God. God is ruler over all. And he uses natural and ordinary means to bring about all things that come to pass. And so, because God is often wearing these very ordinary masks, we tend to forget that God is really behind it all. Can we decipher God's ordinary providence? Do we know what he's up to in every single situation that comes to pass? Of course not. Unless God has revealed it to us in his word, there's no way for us to know all of the details of every action through every means and what they will result in. But what can I be sure of? I can be sure of this at the very least. If it happens, it is part of the secret will of God to bring about a greater purpose than I could ever imagine in that very moment. So what does all of this have to do with a series about ordinary. We discussed last week that God calls us to live our lives in rather ordinary ways. We do chores. We go to our jobs. We, we go through a pretty regular routine day after day after day. And in those moments, we are challenged by God to do some rather ordinary, courageous, and difficult things. 
And so we need not think of our lives as meaningless or lacking in purpose or effectiveness for the kingdom because we're changing diapers on a baby or changing oil in a car or because the end of our being at the end of our day is not about being extraordinary. It's about the ordinary, normal, seemingly mundane things of life being lived onto God that we might have communion with him. And so as we think about God's providence this morning, we have to be convinced that God is in the middle of the laundry and the vacuuming and driving down the road and shopping at the grocery store and even when we're preparing our taxes. God is there. I know, it's a shocker. But God is the God of the ordinary And he uses ordinary means in ordinary lives to bring about his great and extraordinary ends. This is good news for us. This is good news for every Christian. And if you're anything like me, you may be tired of trying to live fantastically. This is spectacular news for those who've been tempted to think that their, their lives escape the notice of God because they're decidedly normal. It's encouraging because the mundane is reality. We flirt with greatness. The fact is this, for the Christian and non-Christian alike, ordinary life is the divine order of the day for all of us. You might be the most famous person on the face of the planet, but you still have kids and bills and home repairs and putting gas in the tank and as Christians attending church, all of us have inexpensive pleasures and discount shopping and family reunions. That is what life is made of. There may be explosive interruptions in our lives, some things wondrous and beautiful, other things terrible and difficult but all of them are inevitable. Indeed, how many of the stories that we love are tales of ordinary men and women whose lives are changed by extraordinary events and then nothing is the same again? Imagine going to a a two and a half hour movie and the whole movie is just about someone's normal everyday life and nothing extraordinary happens. We're not entertained by that. We're not excited by that. Prince Charming needs to ride in. A goddess needs to step out of the woods. Everything needs to come fantastically unhinged or we're not entertained. It's not worth it. But that's not life. For the most part, it's all ordinary and mundane. And thankfully, because we understand God's providence, we realize he's behind it all. He is behind it all. And so we've seen from David's prayer that there is a way for the Christian to respond to God's providence in our lives through thanksgiving and praise. But how do we live in light of it? As citizens of God's kingdom, recognizing that our all-powerful God works through ordinary means in our daily lives, how are we to live? Let's be honest. All of us mostly wish that we could ask God a question with some particular decision that we need to make in our lives and just get a straight answer, right? Maybe he'll send me a letter in the mail or hear a voice from heaven. 
But despite what many people claim, that's not how God works. God has given us principles in his word. He's given the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who provides discernment in our circumstances. And we are responsible in the midst of our ordinary everyday lives to pray, asking God to align our hearts with his ways. But in the end, I still need to make decisions. How do I do it? Well, if I have a sound theology of the providence of God, I can just do it. I can make a decision. So how do I know that I married the right woman? Because we stood there together and both of us said, I do. How do I know that I have the right job? Well, because I'm doing it right now. How do I know that I live in the right place? Because I'm here. You see, there's, there's something incredibly freeing about understanding the ordinary providence of God. I don't have to fret that I keep making the wrong decision. Am I in the center of God's will? Well, is it happening? Then surely you are. When I recognize that God is at work through ordinary means in my ordinary life, I'm freed up to make decisions small and large without fear so long as I'm making them in accordance with God's word. I'm praying, I'm asking God for wisdom, I'm applying the principles of scripture, perhaps I'm seeking wisdom from those who love me and who care for me along the way. I can know in the end that whatever I decide is ultimately within God's providential care for me. Even if the end result is terrible. Even if the end result of my decision is awful, it was part of God's plan to bring about something even greater. So I'm freed up to pray to God without agonizing whether or not he's going to hear me or respond to me. He is and he will, but it may not be in the way that I ask or expect. I'm freed up to recognize that while all of the events in my life may not be filled with joy or pleasure. They are a part of God's plan for my life to bring him glory and to bring me the greatest good. Charles Spurgeon spoke about God's providence as being like a wheel. Sometimes one part of the wheel is at top and then it is at the bottom. Sometimes one part is exalted and then it sinks down into the dust and it's lifted then again to the air and then it's brought back down to the earth. He says this, so it is with our life. Sometimes we are in humble poverty and hardly know what we shall do for bread. Soon the wheel revolves and we are brought into comfort of wealth. Our feet stand in a spacious room. We are fed with corn and wine. We drink a cup overflowing its brim. Again, we are brought low through affliction and famine. A little while and another page is turned and we are exalted to the heavens. We can sing and rejoice in the Lord our God. Ah, man, thou art strong and rich and great. Thou mayest stand now at the uppermost part of it. But it is a wheel, and you may be brought low. And you poor who are depressed and downcast, who are weeping because you know not where you shall lay your head, that wheel may revolve and you may be lifted up. Our own experience is never a stable thing. It is always changing, always turning round. The world may cry, Hosanna to its minister today. 
and the next day may say, crucify him, crucify him. Such is the state of man. Providence is like a wheel. And then Spurgeon goes on to explain that at the center of the wheel is an axle that never moves, and that axle of God's providence is his everlasting love toward his covenant people. And the exterior of the wheel changes day by day as it rotates, but the center stands fixed forever. Everything may move around it, but God's love for his people is certain. And then even further, when a wheel is moving quickly, you can't see any of the details of the wheel. You can only see that it's a circle. And so Spurgeon suggests it is with God's providence. As we look back at the history of our lives, we don't see all of the little things that have gone into getting the wheel where it is, but we do see one great thing, and that is God working through ordinary means to bring about everlasting purposes. I like his counsel here, that we take the whole picture together instead of the circumstances one by one. Look over the course of months and years, not days and weeks. We will drive ourselves crazy if we seek to think about every circumstance of our life and how is it working to bring about God's ultimate purposes. We have tough days. We have difficult weeks. But in the Christian life, because we live under the perfect reign of a powerful, providential God, we can look back over the course of our lives and say, God is good and God is wise, and God is just. How many of us have looked at the circumstances of our lives, and in the middle of those circumstances, they were horrible, they were terrible, they were heartbreaking, and we didn't think there was a way out. But months and years down the road, we look back and say, praise be to God. He brought me to a place I never thought I would be. Dear brother or sister, you may be struggling today with some trouble in your heart. You've been here before. Has God not been faithful? Has God not provided you with a way of wisdom and joy far greater than anything you have hoped for or imagined immediately? Do you have decisions to make? Do you have trials to overcome right now? Fear not. Our God is a God of providence, and in his hand is power and might, and in his hand he makes great and gives strength. Things right now in this moment may be bleak or wearisome or difficult or impossible, but can you remember how much our God cares for us and loves us as his people? There's some of you here who don't know Christ and aren't children of God at all. And I want you to know that even though you reject your creator, his rule is over your life too. I hope that today you'll consider this very important reality. Right now, at this very moment, in God's providence, you are sitting here and you are hearing my voice and I'm calling you to look to God and to repent and believe in Christ. Things today may seem fine to you, and you may think that it's all well and you can handle your own life, but while God knows what may come tomorrow, you don't. The difference between you and a Christian is that when tomorrow comes, the Christian has the great hope that God will see us through whatever comes to pass. No matter what comes, good or bad, we have a heavenly Father who cares for us. 
and a loving Savior who has given his righteousness that we might walk in obedience and joy no matter the circumstances. And we have a Holy Spirit who will comfort us and guide us and instruct us and strengthen us. It's no mistake that you're here this morning. So what are you going to do with that? Will you go home and assume that it's meaningless? It's just a way to spend some time. I got dragged here by someone. Or could it be that there's a greater purpose? That through this rather ordinary experience of being in a church on a Sunday morning, that God is actually up to something in your life. And for the rest of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray this morning that we can have a greater grasp of our wonderful God who's providentially working to bring all things to pass for his great renown and for our greatest good in such a way that in the most seemingly meaningless, ordinary, mundane things of this life, that we would remember they have a purpose. You may be doing the most boring, unattractive task you can think of tomorrow. And yet, you can have total confidence that God is right in the middle of it. And like David, we ought to consider it's all a part of God's great big plan and address him with praise and thanksgiving. We have a great God with a great purpose, don't we? Let's pray together. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, from forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Thank you, O God, for your word. Thank you for the reminder that your providential care for us is in every detail of our ordinary lives. And thank you that we can be reminded that whatever we encounter, as we wake up in the morning to go about our days, that whatever comes to pass is to bring about the greater ends that you have designed. Help us, O God, to walk in obedience. Help us to remember you in all that we do, even when it is trying, even when it is difficult, even when it involves pain and trial and suffering. May we remember that your purposes are greater than ours. Your wisdom is far beyond anything we could grasp. And your infinite goodness is the assurance that we need to know that in the end you will work it all together for our good and for your glory. Thank you, O God, for your word and for your goodness and kindness and love. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.